Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Coralie Chevalier. She is a researcher in the Evolution and Social Cognition Group at the Cognitive Science Department of the École Normale Supérieure uh, in France. She is a behavioral scientist studying the evolutionary and cognitive determinants of social cognition. She has mainly focused on the way motivational factors affect people's social behaviors and today we're going to talk about individual differences in, in social cognition and how the study of those differences might apply to different areas, particularly public policy. So, Dr. Chevalier, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. So getting into the topic I mentioned, individual differences in social cognition. So what are these exactly and how do you study them? It's a challenge to study individual differences. And I think that that's because cognitive, cognitive science has been initially designed uh, to track universals in human cognition. And in fact, the way we even build experiments when we build behavioral experiments is, uh, uh, is usually geared towards identifying what's common between people. Uh, in fact, we try to even make error bars as little as possible. And we call error bars error bars as if variation, variability was a uh, mistake and something that we really want to get rid of. So it's difficult to study individual differences, but of course, there's a huge tradition in psychology, in the, in the personality psychology and social psychology to try and understand beyond universals in human cognition, what makes people different in their reactions and in their behavior. So how, how do we study individual differences? There are many ways in which we can try to track and measure uh, how and why people are different. Uh, we can use questionnaires, surveys, we can use behavioral experiments, we can compare groups uh, that differ along certain traits, traits that we can uh, measure, or we can uh, try to uh, have a, a, an, an effect to intervene on a specific aspect of uh, personality, for example, or, or a state, and see whether intervening on that state has a down-the-road effect on people's cognition. So these are the various ways in which we can study individual differences. Uh, but are perhaps some approaches better than others? Like, for example, if you use behavioral tasks, I, I mean, I don't know if you, use, if you use them specifically in your work, but uh, uh, and this is just an example, but are some ways of studying individual differences better than others? Yes, uh, I'm sure that there are better ways uh, of studying individual differences. I'm not sure that there is, the debate has been solved yet. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of my career, I was really convinced that the best way of studying individual differences was designing behavioral experiments. Mm -hmm. And the reason was that when you use a questionnaire, then um, the answers that people provide can be biased in many ways, and in particular by people's um, 
motivation to appear good in the eye of the person who distributes the questionnaire. It's called the social desirability effect, whereby people provide the answer that they think you as an experimenter desires. Um, so I was really convinced that in order to avoid this, the most objective measure was designing a behavioral task in which people were just going to act and by looking at the way they behave, uh, we cognitive scientists could retrieve uh, the, in, the, the underlying individual difference. Now, um, as time has gone by, I've come to change my opinion on this topic. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes uh, it's more powerful to just ask a few questions and let people, in fact, have a very good idea of uh, their own personality and they have a very good idea of their strengths and weaknesses and provided that they feel safe enough to disclose their strengths and weaknesses, um, we can actually get a, a very powerful idea of individual differences. For example, um, there's lots of work looking at the best way of uh, tapping into people's health uh, and and researchers have compared very exhaustive surveys in which you ask people for very precise individual behaviors like do you run what do you eat every day do you smoke do you and then they've compared this with a very simple question which is um, how good is your health according to you and there are papers showing that asking this very simple question is uh, as predictive of uh, people's true health than uh, using very detailed surveys, let alone behavioral experiments. So to answer your question, um, I think that surveys are underrated uh, and that um, we as behavioral scientists have to have still have a lot of work to do to design experiments that do a good job capturing individual differences. So we are possibly not as self-deceived or biased when it comes to ourselves, where as many people claim? Or... Perhaps. Um, for instance, or, or we haven't managed to design experiments that actually do a very good job at capturing variability. Okay. Perhaps because we have this long tradition of designing experiments that are mm -hmm. geared towards uh, universality, towards making sure that people mm -hmm. will fact behave in a way that is not noisy. Um, right. to, to take a, a, an example that's linked to social cognition to, and to the work I'm interested in, um, the trust game, for example, uh, in e economics, isn't more predictive of true pro-social behavior in real life as just asking people how much do you trust others. And mm -hmm. for a psychologist, this is a, a bit of a revolution to really to, to realize that uh, conceptualizing this game where you can really control all of the parameters and and do what, what we think is a better job uh, is in fact not that much better than just asking people how much do you trust others. It doesn't mean that we should give up on, design, on designing good behavioral tasks, mm -hmm. but it means that it's a challenge and um, that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, underrate or belittle the uh, usefulness of simple surveys. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned there, even statistically speaking, perhaps 
we are not interpreting uh, the noise correctly. Perhaps some of the noise is in fact informative, but it corresponds to individual variation. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of the noise is signal, and it's very difficult to tease apart which is which. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I I don't want to sound like I'm making an, an like I'm providing an answer to sound uh, friendly to everybody, but I do think that we need a multi-method approach to understanding individual differences, and that to this date. Uh, nobody can say, oh, behavioral tasks are obviously better all the, all the time. That's, that's certainly not what I think. Great. So let's get into some of the factors that play a role in individual differences in social cognition that you've been doing work on. So you've done work on, for example, stress, environmental harshness and uncertainty. So what is each of these factors and basically then later we can talk about the effects that they have but what are they yes um, i've been interested in the way um, environmental harshness or adversity taken broadly has an effect on people's cognition and social cognition in particular and the rationale is that organisms um, everywhere in the living world, human and non-human animals, uh, must have ways to react in a plastic way to the structure of their environment and obviously living in a, living in a favorable or unfavorable environment uh, is a cue that must be taken into account. And in fact, we should expect behavior and cognition to be very different depending on whether you live in a resourceful environment or in a scarce environment. Now, when I talk about harshness uh, or adversity, it's, it mixes together things that can be very different. For example, um, in what I just said, I mentioned scarcity, which is about resources. Do I have a lot of resources or do I have few resources? And that can be predictable. I can have predictably little resources or I can have predictably a lot of resources. Um, Adversity is also about what's unpredictable or not not or, or predictable uh, in my life. Um, it makes a difference uh, if you know whether tomorrow is going to be the same as today uh, and if in a week is going to be the same as in a month. Um, and people should behave and think differently whether their life is predictable or unpredictable and those dimensions can correlate but they can also be orth orthogonal people can live in a in a scarce and unpredictable environment or they can live in a scarce predictable environment and so on um, broadly speaking when i speak about harshness i speak about all of the reasons why life can be difficult and uh, this is not a very fine-tuned concept. I totally realize that. Um, but at this point, this, when I talk about harshness, that's what I'm referring to. Knowing that um, if we want to do a good job, we have to tease apart those various factors ultimately. And we have to make sure that we don't mix up things that have nothing to do with each other. For example, unpredictability and scarcity. 
And so stuff like stress, environmental harshness, uh, and stuff like that, do they have a predictable, a predictable impact in uh, everyone or in most people? Or, I mean, there's also individual variation in terms of how, how and uh, what kind of impact uh, these factors have on people's uh, social cognition in this case? That's a very interesting question. Actually, what I've been interested in is trying to identify the universal universal differences in people's reactions mm -hmm. to their environment. So what I'm mostly interested in is whether on average living in a harsh and unpredictable environment changes mm -hmm. people's behavior and cognition in a certain direction and not another. Uh, but you're asking a different question, which is, uh, does that change happen in the same way for everybody? Mm -hmm. And that's a very interesting question because it taps into things like resilience. Uh, is everybody susceptible in the, to the same magnitude and extent to, the, uh, to reacting to harshness and uncertainty in the same way? Um, there are differences, but that is not my area of expertise. What I am interested in is the broad effect, mm -hmm. uh, the predictable effects of environmental harshness and unpredictability uh, on humans in general. Mm -hmm. Yes, I asked you that, and before we get into the specific effects that those factors have on people's psychology, I asked you that uh, also because, I mean, perhaps we could understand things here in two different ways. Okay, so uh, perhaps these factors would produce individual differences because different people are exposed to different kinds of environments. Some people are exposed to harsh environments and others to environments that are not so harsh or secure environments, let's say. Uh, that would be one way of thinking about it. But uh, on the other hand, it could also be the case that even people who are exposed to the same kind of environment would react to it or respond to it in different ways. And those would be individual differences that are more uh, intra personal, let's say. Yes, absolutely. I mean, those differences exist. Uh, and um, that's why I was talking about resilience. That's one way of conceptualizing those differences. People are more or less re resilient to, yeah. to the issues that go with harshness. Uh, and the reason why that is, is uh, in part genetic. There are genetic differences between people that make them have different personality traits and different mm -hmm. personality traits make you more or less immune to the, the consequences of uh, harshness. For example, there are genetic differences in people's predisposition to stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, however, I am, I'm, I'm not an expert in uh, that area. Sure, fair enough. So uh, let's get then into the psychological effects that these uh, factors have. So. How do they affect, for example, cooperation and social trust? So if for, if, for example, someone is exposed to or grows up in a harsh environment, what effects does that have when it comes to how they cooperate or trust others? Yeah, well, first, let me say that um, 
I, I am of the opinion that we should pay attention to the idea that uh, people's reactions to harshness should not be construed as a deviation from the norm, mm -hmm. a norm that would be conceptualized around the people who do not live in harsh and unpredictable environments. So right. I think it's really important to stress this. Uh, when biologists compare animals who uh, live in different environments, environments with lots of predators versus environments without many predators, and they observe that uh, those animals behave differently in the in these various environments. Um, they they have a very sort of neutral language to describe what's going on, and their premise is that they have to retrieve uh, the um, uh, the thing that makes the animals look different mm -hmm. without taking uh, without taking as a starting point that one behavior is better than another their mm -hmm. goal is to really understand how each behavior is calibrated to its environment and i think that's a really powerful insight for people like me who do social sciences and who try to study humans um, too often um, we we take for granted that there's a norm and then we try to analyze other behaviors as if they were um, deviations from that norm, as opposed to another well-calibrated behavior to people's in response to people's mm -hmm. environment. Right. So that's a little preface that I wanted to make because it's really important when we talk about cooperation. So if I had to summarize how people living in harsh and unpredictable environments um, behave, uh, then I would say that their uh, cooperative style is one that is more cautious. It's a cautious cooperative style. And the reason why they're more cautious in their cooperative style is that cooperation comes with a risk. So we're a really cooperative species. And that means that we do things together. And when we do things together, we need to ensure that it's mutually beneficial and that we're not giving too much at the risk of being exploited, and that we're not giving too little at the risk of looking like a cheater ourselves. Um, now, if you have a lot of resources, then you can take the risk of sometimes cooperative with a cheater you hadn't detected, because you have resources to buffer uh, that risk coming from cooperation. If you have few resources, then um, you should be more cautious in your cooperative style. And that's exactly what we observe uh, amongst people living in harsh and unpredictable environments. And so that's about uh, cooperation and trust. Uh, does living in harsh environments also have effects on how people deal with health issues? Um, yes, actually, because there's another important um, influence of the environment on people's cognition, which is their preference for immediate versus delayed rewards. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, quite a robust finding that the relationship that people have with time is influenced by their level of resources and by how much the environment they live in is predictable or unpredictable. Mm -hmm. um, so some people call it the present bias. I'm not sure I like that uh, formulation because, again, that takes for granted that there's a preferred uh, mm -hmm. behavior 
and that what deviates from that behavior is a bias. Um, other people talk about temporal differences. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, you get the idea that uh, people living in unfavorable circumstances tend to favor immediate, uh, immediate benefits over delayed benefits. And again, that makes a lot of sense. If you have few resources, then it's more rational and more useful to focus on immediate gains right here and right now that are sure rather than waiting for later gains that are unsure, um, even, even if the later gains are larger. Um, that's, in the, that's a very abstract way of describing the situation. But as you can see, um, the ability to delay benefits is um, ubiquitous in a number of life decisions that we have to make. For example, inventing, investing in preventative health is a very good example of a decision that you make right here, right now, to delay the benefits of, say, um, eating um, greasy food uh, over the longer-term benefits of uh, having a better health. And um, so it makes sense to expect that those cognitive differences, which can be traced back to environmental differences, have a down-the-road effect on um, decisions that have societal relevance, mm -hmm. like how much do you invest in your health or how much do you invest in your education? Right. And, and I mean, toward the end, we will come back to this also to comment a little bit more on how people think about these as biases and uh, how people think, uh, how people compare things to the norm. We will come back to that. But uh, what about political attitudes? I mean, does harshness or unpredictability also have an effect on people's political attitudes? Yes, so first health, I should have given an example. I'm sorry, I'm just going back one step. Um, we know, for example, that people um, having grown in a harsh and unpredictable environment are more exposed to uh, risky health behaviors such as uh, smoking uh, uh, or um, drink, consuming um, uh, alcohol. So these are behaviors that are more uh, risky. Mm -hmm. uh, we also know that uh, their life expectancy is hugely reduced. I mean, of course, of course, this is not at all uh, solely linked to their behavior, but also to the fact that they live in environments that are uh, more uh, polluted and, and they have jobs that are more dangerous and so on. But it's also due to the fact that there's less of an investment in preventative health. So for all of those behave, health behaviors, um, what we observe down the line is that um, life expectancy is reduced. Uh, and the factors that explain this are uh, multiple and should be tackled each. There are societal factors. There are um, uh, work uh, factors. But there are also um, individual uh, psychological factors, and that's what I'm interested in. It doesn't mean that I, that I ignore the other factors or even that I think that uh, those other factors are not um, more um, predictive. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, but I, I was uh, mentioning about political latitudes. So yes, political also... yeah. yes, political attitudes. Well, given that we've 
you know, we've discussed the fact that trust is influenced by uh, and cooperation is influenced by uh, level of resources and by uh, people's environment. Uh, again, we should expect variations in uh, overall political attitudes. So it's interesting to me to take into account that individual differences, when you aggregate them, potentially create different societal dynamics. Uh, so, of course, political preferences uh, are related to things like generalized trust. How much do you trust institutions? How much do you trust your neighbor? How much do you trust others to act well in a society? Um, and political scientists have demonstrated that trust is a very powerful predictor of, uh, of um, votes. Mm -hmm. So I don't study the relationship between trust and political attitudes. What I'm mostly interested in is the relationship between environmental harshness and trust. But what I can say is that when I've looked at those differences, I've seen that, um, for example, people living in harsh and unpredictable environments have, um, uh, have, a, have a preference for more authoritarian leaders, mm -hmm. which are construed as leaders who can um, make sure that everybody keeps cooperating and that cheaters are detected in an environment that people feel is not conducive to cooperation. So that's one big difference. Another big difference is people's readiness to get involved in collective actions. Um, and again, that makes a lot of sense because if you live in an environment where people's generalized trust is not high, then um, it may, it's less beneficial to, in, to invest in collective actions yourself. Mm -hmm. So those differences have been, um, uh, have been found vastly in the literature and also in some of the work that I've conducted. Um, and how about uh, parental investment? I mean, is it that uh, living in a harsh and unpredictable environment also has specific effects in how much people invest uh, parentally or how they do that investment? Yes, so that's been studied a lot, in fact, in evolutionary sciences, trying to understand um, what are the factors that influence people's um, behavior towards their children, how much they care for their children, what are their caring styles, uh, how long women breastfeed and things like that. Mm -hmm. What we, what our work has shown is that uh, having lived in a harsh and unpredictable environment uh, has an effect on people's life strategy and how fast it is. So we know, for example, that women have their uh, children earlier when they've grown in a harsh and unpredictable environment. Um, other studies have shown that uh, women must feed less long. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work by people uh, interested in, um, uh, in language that show that children living in environments uh, that are harsh are less talked uh, to, mm -hmm. uh, which is a different kind of investment. Uh, but it's still interesting to me because um, speaking to, to children um, has down the road consequences and those findings are really well known. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, caring styles can also be very different, including the values that um, women uh, and men um, put at the top of their priority list for their children. For example, do you value more autonomy or do you value more discipline? Um, there are, there's a social gradient uh, in uh, these kinds of questions. Yes, lately I've been interested with a doctoral student whose name is Lodin Carbuccia at uh, uh, whether uh, women coming from different backgrounds value differently uh, daycares versus taking care of their children themselves uh, versus having a nanny. And what's really interested, uh, interesting is that when she talked to these women, they were all equally interested in caring for their children, but they had different preferences in the right timing at which they thought it was a good idea to bring a child to daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, women who uh, were more um, privileged uh, thought it was okay to put their children in daycare early, and they talked about values such as uh, their children learning from a very early age about being with others, cooperating with others. Whereas women from a less privileged background uh, talked a lot about the importance of making sure that their kid was safe when they were little. And they mentioned as a really important decision factor, uh, security for keeping their children physically close to them for at least a year. So what I found interesting in uh, Lodin's study is that by really having this, these qualitative methods, she was able to retrieve um, that privileged and underprivileged women value parental investment just as much, but they value uh, different aspects of parental investment uh, differently. So mm -hmm. cooperation for the more privileged women and learning how to live in a collective world uh, and for the less privileged women, uh, valuing security and physical closeness and the ability to stay with your child for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you're also interested in applying uh, cognitive insights to public policy, but before we get into that, just to close off this section of the interview, I mean, uh, uh, regarding uh, norms and how we think about biases, for example, uh, just to comment or add to what you said before, and if I say something wrong, please correct me, but I guess that, uh, of course, when we think about the certain behaviors of people who live in harsh and predictable environments in poverty, for example, and I've already talked with other people on the show about this, uh, sometimes we tend to compare their behavior to what is considered normative in our societies and because we ourselves, for example, live in industrial or post-industrial societies now, uh, we call uh, some temporal differences, uh, having a present bias, for example, instead of using the term temporal differences. And for all the other aspects we talked about here, like parental investment and health-related issues and decisions. And I mean, perhaps we have to reframe the way we think about that, because actually, from a biological perspective, uh, people behaving that way and making those decisions in harsh environments is perfectly 
normal and rational, right? But that's not the way we tend to think about it because we compare it to the norm in our own societies. Correct? Yes, that's a, I think that's an excellent summary. Perhaps I would just add that um, my uh, goal is to understand the extent to which those some of those behaviors are well calibrated. But that's not to say that they're beneficial. I mean, those behaviors uh, do have costs for individuals many times, and we, we must ensure, and that's the role of public policies, the role mm -hmm. of public policies is to make sure that the costs that uh, poorer people incur um, are buffered by the public policies that are designed for them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's one important thing to mention. And the second one is that there are times where living in a harsh environment can truly um, break the system, as it were. For example, if um, you, I don't know, uh, the first example that comes to mind is if your mother um, drank alcohol when uh, she was pregnant, mm -hmm. and you, you can have fetal alcohol syndrome, and nobody is saying that fetal alcohol syndrome is a calibrated response to the environment, then it's, it's truly uh, a pathology. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is that we should perhaps change the focus a little and see many more behaviors than we um, intuitively do, not as pathologies of behaviors, but as uh, behaviors that are uh, contextually appropriate to people's environment. Behaviors that are perhaps we could call them adaptive. Right. Yes, so ad adapted to the environment. I wouldn't say that they're mm -hmm. adaptations. Oh, oh, yeah, yes, not adaptation in the biological sense, but in right. that particular ecology, let's say the behavior is adaptive. Yes, I think that the phrase I like the most is Daniel Nettles phrasing. Uh, he says, behaviors that, behaviors that are contextually appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I also like that. So talking about public policy, I know that one of the issues you care about is climate change mitigation. So how does the work you're doing uh, in behavioral and cognitive science apply to that specifically? What I'm really interested in uh, for climate change is that uh, climate change requires that we find technical solutions and political solutions and regulatory solutions. But it also requires that uh, individuals agree with the changes that uh, politicians are going to put forward. It also necessitates that citizens um, use the new technologies that are going to be developed. So we can't think about climate change without thinking about how people are going to react to the new technologies and new policies and new regulations that will have to be put in place. Mm -hmm. um, and social cognition is especially important in that respect because people value over and above whether policies are fair, which means that they will adhere to new norms and new, new regulations and new policies to the extent that they have evidence that those have been designed in a fair way. 
And to the extent that they have evidence that everybody is doing their fair share. So for somebody like me who's interested in cooperation and social cognition, it's really easy to see uh, how psychology can contribute uh, to um, questions around climate change mitigation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one question I would like to ask you is, uh, and this applies not only to climate change, but also we talked about poverty, for example. I mean, uh, as a scientist, when it comes to interventions, where do you think we should or what do you think we should focus on? Because there are uh, interventions that are uh, applied on an individual level and others that are more uh, applied on a collective level or at the level of uh, political interventions, let's say. And of course, uh, people can discuss this if ones are better than the others. So, but when it comes to, for example, um, reasoning about climate change, do you think that what would have the most impact would be to try to change things on an individual level? That is how individual people reason about this issue or on a more broader scale uh, political collective level? I think we have to do both and I think okay. that we should stop antagonizing those two solutions because mm -hmm. actually they're very interdependent. You can't make a political decision without individuals agreeing to it. So we, we both need change at the individual level. We need people to think differently about climate change, to think differently about their responsibility in taking action in the in the realm where they have power to do so. Um, and we also need political change. But the two are so intimately related that I don't think it's a good idea to oppose um, collective versus individual action. Um, and I think that sometimes what's going to be most efficient is to put forward a new regulatory instrument. For example, the carbon tax is a really good example. Uh, the carbon tax economists agree to the idea that uh, increasing the carbon tax, the price of carbon, would be a very efficient way of solving uh, or mitigating climate change. But in order to do this, you need people to agree uh, to the carbon tax being increased. And in order to design a carbon tax that people agree to, you need to take into account their psychology. And in particular, you need to take into account whether they're going to think that a carbon tax increase is fair or not. And whether it is fair or not depends on whether they have evidence that everybody is contributing according to a fair share, whether richer people are contributing more or not whether poorer people who live in more rural areas are compensated for the fact that, you know, they live in a society where the contract was that it was okay to live in the countryside, and now it's more costly to live in the countryside. How do we compensate for this as a society? So I really think that even for policies that are very collective, very, and, and taken at the macro level, it's a mistake to ignore individual psychology because it means that then you create policies that uh, do not end up convincing citizens. And since we live in democracies, you can't just skip people's opinion and pass whatever law you want to pass. Right. 
So, uh, in the interest of time, let's talk about one final topic then, because I know you're also very interested in trying to understand how can studying social cognition teaches about uh, reducing inequalities in higher education. So, uh, tell us a bit about that. I mean, what are you interested in exactly when it comes to that topic and how we can tackle it? Thanks. Well, first, let me say that the reason I'm interested in this is that it speaks to all of the all the other questions that we've alluded to during this interview. Mm -hmm. uh, when people are uh, more educated, it has down the road effects on their salaries. Um, in France, um, one year of extra education increases people's salary by about 15%. So it's 50% by the time you've reached a master's degree. Um, there, there's also evidence that people who receive a higher education are happier um, and uh, that um, they uh, are less exposed to underemployment, that they uh, that geographical mobility is easier, social mobility is easier, they also report higher life satisfaction. So all of those things are hugely important for individuals, but also for society, uh, as societies um, are uh, more educated, uh, it, is e it becomes easier to solve collective action problems. Um, so everything is tied together. Now, the reason I'm interested in this is that um, in France, access to higher education is still hugely um, unequal. Uh, there's a very big gradient uh, in access to higher education if you compare the poorest deciles in society to the richest deciles in society. In fact, the gap is very comparable to that observed in the United States, which isn't exactly what people would expect given that both societies are organized very differently including for higher education. Um, so the United States has a system where uh, the cost is high, but there are also a lot of uh, scholarships available. France is organized around a system where the cost is low, but aid is low as well. Now, what I think is interesting is that there are lots of reasons, structural, societal, sociological, um, that explains this gap. But one of the reasons that is less explored is a psychological reason. And I think one of the important psychological reasons that explains this gap is um, different reactions to uncertainty. So being educated means that you incur a cost right now and the benefits will come later. And we had discussions already during the interview about how that might be different depending on your environment. Mm -hmm. Um, an added complication with higher education is that the benefit is uncertain and de it depends on whether you're going to succeed or not. Um, and succeeding in higher education is difficult if you live in an environment where there's interruption risk. For example, perhaps in two years you're going to have to stop studying because, because all, all of a sudden it's not possible for you anymore, independently of your academic skills. Um, Studying has a financial cost, and of course, when you live in a harsh environment, you have less of a buffer, you have fewer financial resources to incur that cost. And it also implies changing um, your social network, and that's because 
in, in countries like France or the US where social mobility is low, um, if you go to university, then you leave your uh, current social network. So it means that on top of all of the risks that I've just mentioned, you don't even have the security net of your uh, current friend and family. So all of that uncertainty creates conditions in which it's harder for people living in harsh and unpredictable environment to actually make the decision of entering higher education. Um, and the final reason for uncertainty is, um, is success uncertainty, um, in particular in countries like France, where uh, success at the bachelor's level is, uh, is rather low. So when I really think that taking a psychological perspective can help us design better public policies for higher education. For example, aid should be guaranteed and not hypothetical. So pupils in high school should be told what aid they're going to get if they enter higher education. Um, success rates should also be uh, transparent so that students can choose uh, tracks where they have more evidence that they're likely to succeed. Um, and also I think that finding ways of helping students have the guarantee that if they quit in the middle of their degree, they still have something to show for, would be another way of talking, of designing the higher education system in a way that is more compatible with uh, their psychology. Okay, so uh, just that last part to clarify it a little bit, that would mean that uh, so even if someone is taking a bachelor's degree and they do not really finish it, they would still have something to show uh, to uh, in the labor market that would be a benefit to them. Right. Yes, like a certificate, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's right. interesting because the for-profit sector in the United States has started to develop many such certificates. So you can get a certificate after one year or after two years. Mm -hmm. um, and those are generally of not very high quality and they're costly, they're expensive. Um, so the, I think the nonprofit sector uh, should really develop uh, similar programs so that if you study, if, if you make the decision to study, you have the opportunity of making the decision to study for just one year and then you can cash out or you can continue. Um, and, and I think that would make a true difference to um, uh, adjust to people's different psychology. Mm -hmm. Great, so uh, I'm getting mindful of your time, Dr. Chevalier. So before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Sure, well, they can just go on my website and my papers are uh, available uh, and uh, and they can write me an email as well. Okay, great. So I will be leaving uh, links to that in the description box of this interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a big pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thanks a lot. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show 
on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perergo Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henry Calania, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librant, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amal, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Desaraújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Stasevski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Giorgio Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Holt Erickbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassis, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, these are Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.